a hidden war, and I call it the battle for the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the first six verses would just stand with me as we have this reading from God's word. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you have granted us this marvelous opportunity to assemble uh, with this wonderful church and, and the members in particular. And we thank you, Lord, that for our guests who are here, those that maybe are here for the first time, we praise the Lord that you have sought fit to allow these and to encourage these to come and worship with us. We also pray, dear God, that we would understand the nature of the enemy's attacks and that he attacks the minds of all people. And especially in this day and time when the Judeo-Christian ethic is all but gone in the world, we pray that as born-again believers and members of your churches in particular, as that we might be able to understand the need to stand against those elements of darkness and stand for the things of Jesus Christ. We pray, dear God, that we understand in our own minds is that Satan has ways and cunning ways of attacking our minds to kind of convince us against the obedience of Christ. May we seek by your help to defend against him, stand solid on the principles of your word in order that we and members of our family and members of our church families would be able to stand hard against the things of darkness, while at the same time showing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Both my wife and myself had fathers who served in World War II. In fact, my grandfather served, he was an ambulance driver in World War I. So a little bit of military background there. Physical war is only an, a tangible enactment of, of a greater, more real war, the battle of the soul. Regarding that hidden war, there was a pastor by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, who I've read quite a bit of his works, and this is what he wrote, quote, not even modern wars are fought with great intensity at every moment. World War II had preliminary months that were called the phony war. The internal, uh, the in interval between World War II and the inevitable World War III has been called the Cold War. From the human point of view, 
it may appear that there are similar phases of relaxation of intensity in the invisible war. But in this realm, as in the realm of character, man looketh upon the outward appearance. There is no trace, or truce rather, in the invisible war. There is no armistice in the invisible war. What may appear to be only a skirmish may in reality be a major engagement, end quote. We all, whether you think so or not, are enmeshed in an invisible war, a war strewn with spiritual casualties. Today we're going to take a closer look at that very battle, the battle for the mind. For only when we fully understand the battle can we effectively bind up the wounded, release the hostages, and rally those who have retreated. We're uh, totally aware of uh, different spots in the world that seemingly are engaged in constant warlike appearance. The Middle East, South Africa, and even the Americas all are battlegrounds where flesh and blood enemies clash daily with each other. We see the gunfire on the news channels. We read of the casualties in the newspaper. We hear about the escalation of conflicts in the nightly news on TV. And yet, they are only metaphors of a far more liberal battle. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, able, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The original language word for wiles is the word methodiah where we get our word method. It means cunning arts, deceit, and treachery. And believe it or not, that's exactly the devil's strategy. Consequently, our struggle is not in the physical realm, but actually in the spiritual. Verse 12 of the same passage says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, not heaven, but heavenly places, the domain of the enemy for sure. This verse describes the hierarchy of the satanic army that is bent on our destruction. Even though sometimes Satan can come across as our long-lost friend, I'll guarantee you he is no friend. He's the enemy. Demonic activity is both real and it's relentless. No R&R for Satan's army. Just about the time that a church can be engaged in a wonderful spiritual revival uh, with the Holy Spirit moving on the hearts of people and people giving their hearts back to the Lord, people being saved and so on, we can, if we're not careful, we can have a tendency to say, ah, 
Let's take a break from fighting. That's exactly when the Lord's people are at their most vulnerable. Because Satan never sleeps. He's on the vicious attack. And more so this during this time and era. Because he knows that his time is short. And he's uh, increasing with greater intensity his attacks. Those soldiers of the Satan work around the clock seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, year after year after year. All the more reason to put on the whole armor of God. Notice verses uh, 13 through 17 when it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And because of these conditions that we live in today, it's all the more reason that we're to be alert. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, serious-minded. Be vigilant. Be always watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who may, he may, rather, devour. An additional Greek word is even more vivid. According to verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is what it says in that passage. Verse 11, it says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Here the word for devices is not methodia like we had before, but the word noema. It means mind and is so translated in much of the book of 2 Corinthians. Basically, Paul was saying this. We are not indifferent to Satan's mind games or unaware of his mental attacks. The hidden war, again, is the battle for the mind. Have you ever noticed, uh, whether you've gone to college and university, I did, and went to college before I went to seminary, and so on, and of course I went to college starting in 1969, you know, and it's a whole lot different today, I understand. In fact, the very college I went to in Costa Mesa, California, uh, most of my instructors were Christians. I loved my astronomy class. The only problem was it was one o'clock in the afternoon after lunch, and uh, the, it was a, a, in the science forum at Orange Coast College, and uh, uh, that class had about 300 students in it, and it was all like, a, uh, apparently I was constantly agreeing with the instructor. Anyway, his name was Dr. Baron Connectel, and he was asked a question one day with respect to um, 
a rocket or a missile leaving the Earth's atmosphere and why there had to be an accounting for a lost day in time. And I'll never forget his response. He said, scientists have been looking at this question, especially since we have uh, sent men to the moon, because I, I took the class September 69, and that previous July is when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped foot on the moon, uh, the Apollo 11 spacecraft. And I'll never forget his response, and I was not a believer at, that, at this time. This is what he said. He said, uh, scientists have worked on this problem, and the only reasonable response is found in the book of Joshua, where Joshua appealed to the Lord in order for uh, the sun to not set for, say, approximately a 24-hour period so that they could combat the Gibeonites. That was his response. And he says, as a result of that and many other things, I am a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He stated that publicly in our class. That was 1969. Now in 2019, he would probably be fired for making such a claim. But I'm glad he said it then because it was that following summer uh, after that school year when I trusted Christ as my Savior. So a lot of things going on, but the Lord used him, and I'm thankful that he did. Perhaps... No book illustrates the schemes of Satan better than a book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you have ever read that? I encourage you to read it. That's uh, uh, C.S. Lewis was the author. Okay? And C.S. Lewis was a British writer for the first part of his adult life. He was a skeptic and an unbeliever. He married an American lady named Joy Davidson who led him to Christ and he is one of the most prolific writers of uh, uh, the faith that I know of. And so in this imaginary correspondence between an older devil named Screwtape and his ambitious young nephew named Wood, uh, Wood, uh, Wormwood, excuse me, he lifted the, the veil on the inner workings of Satan's dark hierarchy. And I quote, doubtless all young tempters you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And in this context, the enemy's God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without sudden uh, milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape, end quote. Folks, the battle with Satan, battle with the enemy and his uh, soldiers, if you will, is real. It was real then, and it is real now. Unfortunately, we don't have a specific list of the Corinthian members' complaints against Paul, but they made them. But we do have his answers to those complaints. Notice verses 1 and 2 of our text. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the weakness and gentleness of Christ, 
who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, the Paul-Corinthian conflict, as I'll call it, from these two verses, we can deduce the substance of the Corinthians' criticism. The first verse addresses the accusation of hypocrisy. They criticize Paul for being bold with his letters, but lacking courage in person. The second verse combats the criticism of fleshly motives. They accused him of walking in the flesh. Okay. Impure motives and manipulative methods. Now, those same arguments could be listed among some of the televangelists that have existed the last several years, including these days. But let's understand something as Paul addressed these things. In spite of their defamatory remarks, Paul approached the members of the Corinth assembly with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's valuable counsel for any preacher, and it's counsel that I've often given to the young men who are students in our seminary. The tone reflects a calm, controlled response to his accusers. And it is with that same conciliatory tone of humility that he concluded his letter. Notice chapter 13 and verse number 10. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul took the barbs of criticism and turned them into bars of iron to reinforce the foundation of his instruction on spiritual warfare. Verses three to five again, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning fleshly, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In biblical days, Cities were built with defenses to protect them from enemy invasion. The primary structure consequently to that was the wall that surrounded the city. That's why when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem with a, a, a group of the captives out of Babylonian captivity, the first thing in rebuilding the city was to start the wall. That's why when Jericho was invaded by the Israelites, according to the book of Joshua, the strategy centered around bringing down the walls. I've had the joy and the pleasure, as my wife has too, by taking uh, three different uh, groups to the Holy Land uh, from uh, FMBI uh, uh, 
And one, uh, the, all three of those times, we were able to go to the ancient city of Jericho and see what appeared to be the, what was left of the Jericho wall. And it's, um, it was my con uh, consideration and thinking that instead of the walls collapsing when uh, they marched around the, the city seven times and the seventh time the priests blowing the shofars or the trumpets, that instead of the walls going this way, they went this way. Because we saw the evidence of that. But whether that's true or not, that's uh, highly speculative either way. To protect against attack, a few high towers were constructed within the wall. During a siege, military intelligence would give commands from those observation towers to those on the wall itself. That image was in Paul's mind as he compared the spiritual batter, uh, battle. Excuse me, The fortress is the mind. Speculations represent the wall built around that fortress. That is our overall mindset, our pattern of reasoning, our mental attitude. Not until the Lord penetrates that thick wall of defense, which calls for our voluntary submission, okay, can we attain victory over our own thoughts. The lofty things in verse 5 constitute mental blocks that we have developed over the years. Now, pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. If you are not consistently a person of prayer and a person of meditation in the Word of God on a daily basis, what you're doing as the alternative is you're allowing carnal things and the things of the world to penetrate your mind to where even as a born-again believer is that uh, you can be brought to a point in the center of your mind, if you will, of having things potentially compromised. But I'll guarantee you, the individual uh, born-again believer who allows uh, the discipline to exist in their life wherein they're prayer warriors, constantly praying to the Lord, and also they are constantly meditating in the Word of God. Meditation, of course, means that they're allowing the Word to absorb their mind, not only from the standpoint of knowledge, but also from the standpoint, and more importantly, with respect to application. And so what's happening there is, is an individual who has those disciplines firmly in place is that they're all allowing God to penetrate the walls of their minds in order to conform them and lead them into a way whether uh, on the basis that instead of falling victim to the world, their minds are, are captured and captivated by the things of God wherein obedience prevails. God's strategy in the spiritual battle is to take every thought captive, S to scale those lofty observation towers and overcome the military strategists that occupy them. In order, if you will, for the city to be taken, those scheming defensive thoughts 
must be captured and brought into submission one by one. I am by conviction a landmark missionary Baptist. I didn't become one overnight. It took time. It took my mentoring pastor. It took my seminary instructors and through time of personal study over years to be absolutely confirmed in my commitment to those absolute Bible truths. You're not going to be in the faith and maintaining being in the faith overnight. It takes time and it takes commitment and personal discipline. Lest the brethren of the Corinth assembly think that Paul was dodging the issues they raised, he stated his readiness and willingness to confront them. Notice verse 6. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Church discipline. It cannot be effective unless the congregation cooperates. And what had happened, in, uh, according to the first Corinthian letter, is that they were in, that, that assembly was guilty of tolerating one of the most heinous sins imaginable, a sin that wasn't even uh, acceptable in the minds of the Gentile uh, culture around them. And we're not talking about believers. We're talking about pagans who didn't even accept uh, the sin that the Corinthian brethren tolerated. So, Paul was willing to be strong in their midst, but they had to first be willing to submit to his leadership in the matter. In other words, he was saying this, if I have most of you with me, we can clean up this disciplinary issue and get on with the business of proper Christ-like victorious living. Comes down to this, in this day and time in particular, a strategy. It begins with survival. And it should go eventually beyond that to where we're actually apologists in the things of God, to where we can ward off not only the attacks of Satan, but also get in the midst of those who are not believers or do not believe the things of the word of God so that we can be effective in ministering to them. So this strategy for survival against the spiritual batter centers around four words. And you're going to think, man, that's pretty basic stuff. Well, good place to start. Number one, memorize. Memorize. When I went to seminary uh, in Bellflower in 1972, I had just graduated from college, and some of the most basic courses we took were Bible analysis, defense of the faith, they called it, which is apologetics. And I look back now, these many years ago, and found, because I had very effective teachers, is that that was the preparation ground for knowing the basics and knowing how to defend them. Okay. And then through later years, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year in the school, and actually I was on the sixth year program, uh, not because I was a little slow, but that's the kind of program we had back in those days. But anyway, that said, is that uh, it, it built those courses that I took, systematic theology, 
eschatology, as Brother Fritz mentioned in Sunday school, pneumatology, and so on. It built upon that foundation. And the idea is those of us who gravitated toward this absolute knowledge and uh, the statement that un without any question, the Bible is the word of God and must be the last arbiter of truth. And with those things in mind, we emerge. I give all the glory to Christ. I truly, truly do. Uh, Brother Junior and I were, were talking a little earlier, and uh, he, he was talking about the fact that God deserves all the glory. I couldn't agree more. In, in fact, uh, that passage out of 1 Peter chapter 4 that I mentioned sometime back on a Wednesday night, let me see. From a pastoral standpoint, when we study the Word of God, we appeal to the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to guide us into all truth. And so that's God's doing. And then uh, through the course of the research and eventually the presentation, we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in order to properly convey the truths of God that we've studied. So God's in charge of that too. And then we depend on the Holy Spirit through the course of preaching the gospel and preaching God's word to move on the hearts of men. There we are. Holy Spirit's in charge of that too. And so when I think about it, how can I accept any accolades or glory which truly belongs to God in every point? To him be all glory and honor through Christ Jesus' world without end. To align our thoughts with God's thoughts, we need to place his thoughts into our minds. We're told in Psalm 119, and verse number 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The verb uh, hidden is taken from a, a Hebrew word which connotes not only an act but an attitude. Not only placing God's word in our heart but also placing a high value on it. It is translated from the Hebrew word safar meaning treasure or that of hidden value. Okay. Notice also in the second chapter of the book of Proverbs and verses 1 to 5, my son, this is of course Solomon instructing his sons, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, and search for her as for hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Amen. Are you hiding God's word in your heart? That requires meditation. And meditation, I think, from a practical standpoint can be summed up this way. It's not that I read the scripture but it's rather that I pour over it and I allowed God's spirit to teach me 
noticing in very slow contemplation as the reading is going on that these are principles that must have application. And so in order to have proper application, there must be understanding. I think that makes pretty good sense. So the question also is, do you realize that God's words are those as you would find a treasure, seeking them with more diligence than you would even silver or gold? The second word is personalize, to replace old, negative, discouraging thoughts with those that are spiritually positive, encouraging, and uplifting we insert the personal pronouns I, me, my, or mine into the verses you memorize. Here's a case in point. For example, let's take a look at the book of Philippians, which is one of the prison epistles of Paul. And we look to chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The apostle said, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So begin incarnating a particular passage of scripture into your life by personalizing like we will this passage. I will be anxious for nothing. In every area of my life, I will prayerfully let my request be made known to God. And in the process, God will march sentry duty around the walls of my mind and protect me from anxieties that in the past have captured my thoughts. The third word is analyze. The scripture mirrors the complex working of your inner life. As we find in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 23, or, yeah, 23 to 25, it says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that is a synonym for the word of God, okay, and continues in it, and is not a, uh, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Wow, fantastic. Stand before the mirror and ask yourself a few hard questions about what could be holding you back from living for the Lord in a victorious manner. Is there something or maybe even someone I'm afraid of? Why am I defensive? Why am I closed off? Do I really want God's will in my present circumstance? How do I respond here we are, young people, to peer pressure. Why do I respond in the way that I do? Why am I so vulnerable and weak in this particular area of my life? And is there a blind spot I'm oblivious to? Very interesting and necessary questions. 
And then fourth and finally, fourth word is visualize. The mind is an incredibly powerful thing whose thoughts, when properly focused, can lift us to new heights. Consider the thoughts of American poet Henry David Thoreau. Quote, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours, end quote. Now, while I don't believe Henry David Thoreau was a Christian, he was kind of an existentialist, but nonetheless, taking those statements and putting them in a little different context, the quote captures really the essence of the Christian life, which isn't a contrived public display. The life of Jesus Christ in our hearts is a deep, spontaneous, abiding, spiritual, invisible thing where through the invasion of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit, our Lord overruns our speculations, scales the lofty towers in our minds, and brings every thought captive into the obedience to Christ. Then, and only then, will we fully experience the truth in the way that God wants us to. John chapter 8. Verses 31 and 32, familiar passage. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide or remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen. In conclusion, the battle for the mind is indeed what I referred to the hidden war. We scarcely notice it is a battle carefully explained by Paul in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Allowing our minds to be infiltrated by God's word and being steadfast in thinking long and consistently on the things of God will provide the Lord the opportunity to enable us to overcome the strongest defenses Satan can use in his attacks. And by the way, let me uh, kind of encourage you in one other respect. If you think that you can square off with Satan by yourself, he's a very formidable enemy and he has greater power than you do. But that's why James indicated in the fourth chapter of James, verses six and seven, when he said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice that there's that first statement, submit yourselves therefore to God. The idea there is once we do that, we are declaring with our lives and with our commitments that we do not have what it takes to do battle against the enemy by ourselves. When we submit to God, we're in essence saying, Lord, I can't handle this, but you can because the enemy is not stronger than you are. 
I therefore, in faith, turn myself totally to your strength and your ability to overcome him on my behalf. That's the secret, brethren. I, I know of a lot of folks over the years, maybe you have too, of those that have tried in the strength of the flesh to overcome the evil one. Doesn't work. He's more powerful than we are, but he is not more powerful by any stretch than the God we're to submit to. And when we submit to the Lord, notice the promise that James indicates. Resist the devil and what will be the effect? He will flee from you. Wow. Quite a confident thing to be sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the, the uh, instruction in your word and the power that it provides due to the accompanying presence of the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. And we pray also, dear Father, that we understand the depth of our enemy and his vicious attacks and his desire to destroy every child of God and also to thwart any effort in evangelism to try to lead lost souls to Christ. Help us to know, dear God, that even though right now Satan has lost people, lost sinners in the palm of his hand, they can be released when they submit to the gospel, repenting toward you and accepting Christ by faith as their Savior. We know that once that happens, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whose indwelling presence abides in every child of God, that at that particular moment, they will no longer be a possession of Satan, even though he'll still try to influence their minds. We pray, dear God, that we focus our attention on seeking to be totally absorbed in the things and matters that you provide. Help us, Lord, that we allow uh, our walls to be penetrated by the statements in your word in order that those strongholds can be pulled down and the, uh, the uh, ultimate effect is that the obedience of Christ in our lives will prevail. For all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One thing to be sure and is most important is that an individual who is lost and undone, some of the message cannot really benefit you because Paul, of course, addressed the believing members of the Corinthian assembly. But what can happen, though, is, if, uh, is that the Holy Spirit can accompany any Bible message, and he can penetrate the hearts of people, especially those who are lost, to understand the reality of the sinner that they are by nature, and the, the desire of Satan to still want to control their minds and hearts. But the Holy Spirit can penetrate through all of that and convince you in your heart that you are a sinner, but also understand that one of the basic truths of the gospel is that God loves sinners. Man, that blows me away even still. And he demonstrated that love by providing the sacrifice and death of his only begotten son for every person of Adam's race because every, every person of Adam's race is universally a sinner. But it is for sinners for whom Christ died. And as a result, he paid the ultimate penalty of our sin in order that we can not only trust Christ for salvation, but in doing that,
we also avoid God's wrath. And God's wrath is appointed to all men except those who have responded to the gospel and personally received Jesus Christ as their Savior. So let's stand. And as our musicians prepare, we would uh, uh, encourage you to know that this part of the service is an invitation, or some have referred to it as a time of response, which is both accurate, okay? And maybe God's Spirit has so touched your heart this morning in such a way, says, you know what, uh, as, a, uh, as a believer, I've allowed things to infiltrate my mind, and I've allowed those things to stick. And uh, perhaps you need to say, you know what, church, pray, please pray for me as I allow God to tear down those walls in my mind that keep me from not only knowing and believing his truth, but also being able to obey him in the way that will give honor and praise to him. And for those especially who are lost and undone, Satan right now is also working in your heart like the Holy Spirit is to convince you, ah, you don't need this, you're all right. That's Satan. Understand whose uh, who still small voice is trying to convince you to stay away from Christ. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is wooing you. He's speaking to your heart in that, and his still small voice to convince you that the love of God awaits. It's been demonstrated, and now your response is critical because of your eternal destiny that stands in the way. And let me just say it very simply. An individual who responds to the gospel and receives Jesus Christ as their, as their Savior, once that occurs, you're no longer under God's divine wrath at all. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And also, you have a wonderful destiny to look forward to because at that critical moment of decision, when you accept Christ as your Savior, your eternal destiny will change. Most all people, they're headed for hell because they are rejectors of the gospel. But if you trust in Christ, if you call upon his name to be your Savior, your destiny will change instantaneously from hell-bound and that's no longer the case, to a citizen of heaven, and wherein we wait to eventually go home.